so today's text, um, we're not really in a series, but what this is, is something of a prequel uh, or a preface to uh, a series of sermons that we're going to be doing over the next uh, few months in the gospel accounts uh, that will be in Matthew, will be in Mark, will be in Luke, will be in John, will be in all the gospels uh, going at different points, reading gospel accounts of what it was like to walk with Jesus, encouraging and challenging ourselves to enter the gospel narrative ourselves, um, to kind of, if you've never really done this, really put yourself into the story and uh, what is it like for me to walk with Jesus in this moment, in this story, the way he's uh, drawing his uh, disciples and those who are following him, the crowds that are following him, to be his disciple. Um, so just heads up, this is something of a, of a prequel to that because we're really getting into the first three um, passages that lead into him calling his first disciples. And while it might not seem obvious at first, I want to give you a heads up that the three scenes that we're covering today from Jesus's pre-ministry, they actually flow together and interact um, no matter what they might seem like as random or independent narratives um, with little connection to one another, they do actually interact and they do actually flow together. So, so with those things in mind, let's go ahead and read these three narrative scenes and then we'll, uh, we'll come back and uh, address them a little more detail afterwards. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, if you don't know who John the Baptist is, uh, he was one of the, um, the most important figures leading up to Jesus' emergence uh, onto the scene as, um, uh, as God's son entering the world. And uh, in fact, he was related to Jesus, uh, familial uh, related, and uh, he gets called John the Baptist, but it has nothing to do, uh, if you're not familiar with this, it has nothing to do with being a Baptist in today's world. Um, really, the more accurate way of saying it's John the Baptizer, uh, for he was known uh, for that. That was one of his main, um, uh, the main things he did in preparing the way for Jesus. So, continuing on, it says, For he is, meaning John, the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. So John was a preparer. Uh, now John had a camel-haired garment with a leather belt around the waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Uh, pretty interesting guy. Uh, then people from Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins." And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, uh, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And so John doesn't mince words. Uh, he says what's on his mind. And um, if you're not familiar with the, the name Pharisee or Sadducees and what those might be, uh, just to give you a heads up, the Pharisees and Sadducees were two of the more prominent 
um, groups of, um, of, of Jews or religious leaders of the Jews of the day, uh, if you could put them in categories that maybe we'd understand. Uh, the Pharisees uh, were the religious conservatives. Uh, the Sadducees were the religious liberals. Um, one thing they had in common and that they could come together on, they weren't a fan of Jesus um, because he represented a, um, a taking away of their followership. Uh, many of their followers would go after Jesus, and even a lot of their followers went after John before Jesus, uh, obviously going out into the wilderness to be baptized for him. So um, some of them may have come with sincerity, wanting um, in curiosity to know what this baptism is about. Some of them may have actually been enticed by it and wanted to be baptized. Others of them, no doubt, went out to spy and to see what this was all about so that they could uh, conspire, build a plan uh, against John the Baptist, which, by the way, they would eventually do, and he would eventually um, have his head lopped off. Um, so John, uh, then after calling them brutal vipers, asking them, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, he tells them, produce fruit um, or works or um, life action consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Uh, the axe is already at the root of the trees. He's still referring to their lineage uh, to Abraham. He said the axe is at the root of the trees. They're going to be cut off from the lineage that they cling to. Um, therefore, Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water uh, for repentance. Um, if you're not familiar with John and his baptism, it was known as a baptism as, of repentance and forgiveness. Um, he says, I do that, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. A lot of imagery being used here. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, every time I read that, I would just want to end with, and this is the way. Um, some of you get that, some of you don't. Okay. Um, Moving on, um, spoiler alert for Disney Plus, um, because this is the way for us to fulfill our righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. Now, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water and the heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming down on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Before moving on to the next scene, um, if you're not familiar with the uh, doctrine of the Trinity, 
uh, that uh, we as Christians, we believe in God as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he's one, but he's three. Sounds contradictory, but it's uh, not when you actually take the full scope of all the scriptures. But this is actually an example within the New Testament scriptures um, of the distinctness of the identities of Father, Son, and Spirit. Here we have God the Son in the person of Jesus. Then we have the Spirit of God descending in this same scene. But then we also have God the Father speaking. And so all three are there um, basically acting out in their own identities. Uh, yet the Bible says time and again they're also one. This is a mystery, but it also um, it also has some uh, some ways it can be understood that we can't really get into today. But anyway, I just want to point that out in case you ever wonder where the Trinity comes from, the doctrine of the Trinity. This is just one of many places it comes from. Um, verse uh, one of chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Now that's this is really important because what's about to happen. Uh, we need to understand that he was led up by God the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, truly, tell these stones to become bread. Now you can already see that, that these things are intertwining with one another because one of the key aspects of the previous scene was that God the Father says, this is my son. And here we see in the next scene, if you're really God's son, there's a question as to whether he is God's son in the devil's mind. And it says, if you're really God's son, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, still questioning it, right? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Uh, quoting scripture doesn't mean you have good intentions. Um, here we find uh, the enemy. Uh, the devil himself knows the scripture well, and he is quoting it well, and he's not quoting untrue scripture. It's just he has learned how to twist it. Um, and so Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Uh, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. This is obviously something of a vision um, because we're not talking about an actual mountain probably that could see all the kingdoms of the world. But, but in this vision that the Lord allows the devil to take him on, uh, he sees the entire world, the representative kingdoms of the world, their splendor. And the devil said to Jesus, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him and attend him. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, remember we said this was going to happen. John had been arrested. Jesus withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali 
This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. There truly are so many sermons in the text we just read, uh, many sermons. Uh, but today's goal isn't really to preach all the sermons available in these texts, but to see the broad and sweeping movement between these three scenes, which happen to occur just before Jesus begins to gather and call his first disciples. And so due to their location <clears throat> in the Matthew text and the nature of their content, um, because of that, um, it's hard not to see these passages as the foundation, the foundation pieces for discipleship in that uh, they give us the broad strokes of the nature and character of what it will be like to be called by Jesus to be his disciples and to actually live within the scope of discipleship under Jesus or apprenticeship under Jesus. Um, and, and this is good news because this text addresses at least three longings that, that, that many of us um, have had at one time uh, or another. And, um, and just real quickly, these, these longings are, are expressed in what John starts off the text with and what Jesus bookends the text with. Uh, if you missed it, uh, John uh, starts off by saying that he was saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And what do we end with? Jesus picking up the baton and now also saying, repent because the, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, in that statement, whether it's John's statement or Jesus' statement, we really have three implications happening. Uh, the first is repent, that even repentance is possible. Um, and so, again, God doesn't give um, a call or a command that can't be kept or that can't be accomplished. And so we know something of what is contained within these verses is going to address repentance. But he also says, uh, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. This, um, this counterculture to the way and operations of the world that we live in and how it seems to always be askew. Uh, there's a different world in God's kingdom that's different than the kingdoms of this world. And, and so something of the the content of what we're reading in these verses is going to deal with the nature and the beauty and, and what's to be had in the kingdom of God. Uh, but even beyond that, he goes on to say, it's not, it's not just that the kingdom of God is being proclaimed, but that it is also near. It's near to us. And when he says it's near to us, um, if we take what he has mentioned in these uh, in between verses, that he's really talking about the nearness of the king of the kingdom. 
and that the kingdom is near to us in that the king of the kingdom is very near being the person Jesus himself. And so these texts address all these things, which in turn direct so many longings um, that are common to the human heart. For instance, those that might want a new beginning with God, um, feel disconnected at odds, maybe even... um, maybe even uh, very much um, feeling distant from their creator. You know, this is, this is a, a passage that speaks to the nearness of the creator. And so for those who feel very far, um, this is, this is a, a preliminary for what it means to be a disciple and is giving good news about that farness that we feel that it doesn't have to be. Um, it also speaks to... Uh, The fact that uh, in the kingdom of God, uh, repentance is available. And so for those that feel um, like uh, they are maybe condemned, uh, looking for rescue or forgiveness and redemption, um, the the offer or the fact that repentance is even mentioned as a possibility is actually a a welcome sign. Um, And finally, for those to... Uh, beyond just forgiveness and, 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 and not wanting to sit under the, the life and world of condemnation for those that want uh, to actually change. Uh, they don't like where they are. They don't like who they are uh, to, or to be changed, maybe, a more accurate way of saying, or feel like they've been living under the cloud of darkness. Um, that, that's what he's getting into in that very last passage we read uh, for those who are under the, the shadow of darkness. Uh, a light is here. Uh, And so, again, this passage is really good news if that is, in fact, uh, the cry of our heart. Um, In short, for those seeking um, the the scope of what redemption, uh, God's redemption story brings, um, then this this passage offers amazing good news for us, uh, for renewal and for, um, for new life. And so in this sense, Jesus is establishing a pathway for all those that are seeking this new beginning with their creator and with their God. Um, And so what I'm really going to deal with, and um, I'm going to take more time in in the first thing I address than the the last two things, but um, he's really going to deal with at least three things that are central to a life of discipleship under the apprenticeship of Jesus. Um, And the first is the centrality of God's nearness. The centrality of God's nearness made possible by the coming of Jesus, the Son of God. Um, And this actually becomes clear um, in the baptism. Now, if we were to go back to the story of John and how it set up these three scenes, that first scene set up the other two scenes, um, we see that the people of God in that day, represented by the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's saying, you think you're near to God. You really do. You think that because your lineage can be traced back to Abraham as uh, those uh, ethnically Jewish, that you actually have something of an advantage that no one else has. And he kind of reigns on their parade and says, Acts is at the root. Um, he, he can make new family members who are near. Um, You think you're near, 
but you may not be as near as you think you are. Um, and so what Jesus does uh, in his baptism, he makes it clear that he is here to make God near and accessible to anyone, not just those of a particular lineage or those who happen to have a particular pedigree. Um, now, this comes clear in his baptism, and by the way, his baptism may sound like a strange occurrence uh, when you first read through it. Uh, many of you may have been with John wondering, what is John baptizing Jesus for? Um, what is that about? Sounds strange because, you know, why would a sinless Jesus receive a baptism that's known for its meaning uh, being driven towards repentance and forgiveness? Um, we'll get to that in a few minutes, but first we have to recognize Jesus' answer to John uh, on that matter is that his baptism by John fulfills all righteousness. That's how he says it. It fulfills all righteousness. Another way that it can be said uh, in the language is it fulfills what is required. It fulfills what is required. What this likely means is that Jesus is saying, John, you and I have to fulfill our roles in God's unfolding narrative. We each have a part to play. We each have a part to play. And that's where it gets interesting um, because this isn't random. Uh, what's happening here, Jesus being baptized by John, the baptism of Jesus uh, does have meaning and purpose. And so how does this relate to God coming near in the person of Jesus? Well, while the baptism itself has meaning that we won't address quite yet, it is the climax of the baptism narrative that highlights God's nearness to us. And what I mean by the climax, the climax is after he comes out of the water and the spirit descends like a dove and the voice of God the Father rings out. This is my son in whom I am pleased. So first the obvious. His identity is emphasized in the climax of the baptism event. This is God the son. And so, just by virtue of him being God the Son, God is near. Okay? So, so that's pretty plain, right? Just by identifying him. Second, the dove imagery indicates probably something of God's announcement of a new creation that is beginning in the person and work of Jesus. A new creation being established in the Son. And we know this because of the imagery of the dove is well known to anyone who knew their scriptures in the day as being representative of both Genesis 1 and of the story of Noah. Um, and real quickly, if you don't know those stories, really uh, the, 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 the spirit of God is hovering over the waters much like a, like a bird in Genesis 1 uh, over the original creation. And then after the flood and what becomes kind of creation part two, um, after the floods descend, uh, it is, again, a bird that announces the new creation. Here the spirit uh, being represented by the imagery of the dove um, probably is, is speaking to the new creation uh, that is being established in the sun and like the original creation with Adam and Eve and the second creation with Noah. Um, this is not just a new creation, uh, but the new creation also involves a new humanity, Adam and Eve, the progenitors of all of creation, and then Noah and his descendants becoming the new progenitors of the creation from then 
on Jesus, likewise, is the beginning, the first fruits of a new humanity. The first fruits of a new humanity. And so, regarding the baptism itself, uh, if you don't know this about baptism, it's not new to people in the Middle East uh, in this day. Um, we might call it wash, ceremonial washings or whatever, but the idea of baptism going underwater, uh, being plunged and being brought back up was not new. It was not invented by Christians. It was um, established to provide a very specific imagery for Christians that was new, uh, but it was not established by Christians. It was actually established not just with Jews, but also used in other religions in the Middle East. The idea of um, oneself being cleansed or clean was very common. Um, and religions of the day, but specific to the Jewish uh, faith uh, is that not only was it um, as a means of uh, spiritual cleanness uh, or to uh, engage in spiritual cleanness, but it also uh, specifically for proselytes, um, it represented a entering out of their former family into the new family. And so you would actually go under the waters with your former identity now coming out of the waters as, an, as having an identity with your new tribe or with your new family um, as, a, as a proselyte. And so this was actually an idea behind baptism that was very much something that people would have been well aware of. And, um, and so there's no doubt that that was carried over into Christian baptism um, and so Jesus was the first fruits, and two things need to be mentioned on this front. Um, in uh, being baptized, uh, he is identifying with people. He's identifying with people with us as a way to introduce our identification with him. Um, we say this when we baptize people, and I don't know if you think about it much, but one of the things we talk about when we baptize is this is one of our ways that we identify with Jesus. Uh, it's a picture of having been buried in the death of Christ and being raised in the resurrection of Christ and identifying and wanting to claim by the gospel what Jesus has accomplished for us and showing in the baptismal waters that we believe that to be true. Um, and so before you think that the imagery is silly, uh, just realize we engage in all kinds of imagery, rites, and rituals in our world, um, both in the secular and the sacred. And so it's not silly. It's actually very human. We do this. And so having said this, um, he, we, we often wonder about his uh, doing it. Well, well, he actually baptizes to identify with us. Uh, he is the son of God, but he's showing you that he has entered and become human like us. But he's a new human. He's a completely different human. He's perfect in the way Adam and Eve were meant to be, but we're not. And ultimately, he's creating a pathway for a new beginning with God, a pathway to be a part of a new humanity, a new family that has its beginning in Jesus, which brings us to how he also mediates uh, for his people. Um, he mediates for people by representing all of his people backwards as well as forwards when he gets baptized. Um, he is being baptized, and he is showing those who have come before him, which is primarily made up of the people of the, the, the Jewish nation of Israel, 
He is representing them in a way they never were able to represent as God's people. In fact, God's people as Israel were oftentimes called God's son. But he was a different kind of God's son. He was the true, capital S, God's son. And so when he is baptized, he is showing the beginning point, not only forwards for those of us beyond uh, his life and death and resurrection, but he is actually also representing those backwards in time, showing he is the true son of God. Not Israel and not you and I, but we get grafted in as sons and daughters of God by him being the capital S, son of God. So all this kind of stuff is happening here, and he becomes really for us the better Abraham, uh, the, the true Abraham. Uh, Abraham is often thought of the, as the, uh, the key beginning of the people of Israel, but now Jesus is actually the beginning only further in time. Um, so um, the declaration that he is his son uh, is then tested and proved in the next scene with his uh, temptation uh, with the devil. And Jesus uh, shows that he is true Israel or true son of God in that his heart passes all the tests in a way that ours couldn't and that the people of Israel's could not. Uh, what the devil used as a temptation was actually God the Father's directed testing of his son for the world to see. Uh, and obviously recorded for us to read about. Uh, and as God's son, um, Israel always chose its own way. Uh, I would venture to say, as God's sons and daughters, far too often we would say we choose our own way, right? Jesus did not chose his own way. He chose the Lord's way, his Father's way, and thus becomes true Israel, true son of God, and he is the only true son of God. Jesus' baptism event was nothing less than a reminder um, to us of the centrality of a restored relationship between God and humans as a part of the redemptive plans in the gospel to create a new humanity, a new family to which you and I can belong. And so to walk with Jesus and be his disciples is to stay close to him, is to stay close to him as we would our most important relationships, as if we actually believe that's now possible. The gospel tells us it is because of Jesus entering the world. The gospel places a restored relationship with God at its center. The second thing I want to mention from these texts is the centrality in discipleship of embracing God's forgiveness in the gospel and living. This is the important part. This is the hard part, living in light of that forgiveness. It's not easy. And this is why in Romans chapter 8, it begins, there is therefore now no condemnation in Jesus. He says it because I need to hear that. Because I'm prone to regress often to attitudes, behaviors, and lifestyle that says, I feel a little condemned. But he wants us to know and to be reminded of the gospel message that there is actually no condemnation in Christ Jesus. For he took our condemnation on the cross on our behalf so that we would not 
And when we faith in him, that we actually believe that he did that, then there truly is no condemnation for us. And so a lot of what he is talking about and getting at, especially in his temptation testing scene, is this potential, this possibility, this invitation to a life of not living condemned anymore. It's beautiful. Remember, for those who feel the condemnation deeply, who feel shame deeply, the gospel's message of a life of living under forgiveness is very welcome, very welcome. The idea of the temptation and testing of Jesus is that he is not worthy to have been our substitute if he does not pass these tests. He was not worthy to be our substitute if he does not pass the test we see in the temptation of the devil. In fact, if he did, I mean, sorry, if he didn't pass those tests, it actually dooms us to things that we already kind of do to get around our sense of condemnation. For instance, um, constantly engaging in actions of repentance, or I'm sorry, not actions of repentance, reactions of penance, really trying to make up or trying to balance scales or try to do mental psychological gymnastics to address our pain and imperfections. Um, I do it. We all do it. We've all done it. Um, and really, if the gospel's not true, if what Jesus did in the wilderness with the enemy under the directing of God the Holy Spirit to test him, if he did not pass that test, I am doomed. My best efforts are, in fact, to produce penance and to try to even scales and just try to make sure I'm a little better than I am bad. That's, just, that's really my best course. But he, he, he takes an alternative course and says, oh, no, no, those games are over. There is no condemnation because he is the substitute I needed. No condemnation, no scales to balance, no penance to keep, no hoops to convince yourself that you're all okay. Merely know that he was your substitute, that he was the perfect human representative rescuer, and that in this scene, not only does he pass the test, he does something else. He confronts the enemy of my soul, of your soul, in a way that I cannot and you cannot. I can talk big and bad. I can shout at the devil and act like i big, bad, and tough. But he's smarter than me. He's more powerful than me. But not Jesus. But not Jesus. And so he's not just any substitute. He's a substitute for me that went toe-to-toe and knocked the enemy out. He said, away, Satan. And Satan had no other choice but to be away. That's what it means to live under a life with no condemnation, is to believe and live as if Jesus succeeded when he said, away, Satan. Because if you didn't know this, the words Satan and devil in different ways, represent the idea of accusation. He's the accuser. He's the accuser. And he accuses us and wants to convince me that I'm condemned. Oftentimes I believe it. But away Satan says that I'm not condemned. I'm not condemned. 
Jesus' definitive ability and execution of a way Satan was the final word on Jesus' atonement for the forgiveness of sins, the casting of all shame so as to destroy any allegation or accusation of the enemy of my soul and your soul. And Jesus' away Satan um, is something that he would say again, but he would say it to his friend Peter. Why? Because his friend Peter, after Jesus saying, I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to be that substitute because I passed the test, and I'm going to be the substitute that people need. Peter's like, you ain't going to the cross? That's an unfitting way for you to, to die. You shouldn't be executed. You're the son of God. He tells Peter, away, Satan, because he has tunnel vision to be our substitute and to go to the cross. He also demonstrates this in his baptism. You see, among the many other reasons we already mentioned, Jesus was also baptized to identify with people. We mentioned that to demonstrate what he would do for them. We get into the tank and we think about it, maybe I've meditated on the fact that the imagery represented is that because of what Christ did, my sins are buried in the grave and they ain't coming back. And I come out resurrected to new life, a new life that will find its fulfillment in my actual resurrection someday. Jesus was showing what he would do <laughs> in being our substitute, that he would be the first fruits of ensuring the burial of sins and the resurrection to new life. And therefore, there's no condemnation for us. The final thing that we see in these passages is the centrality of fruitful repentance that's made possible in the gospel. Now remember, becoming Jesus' disciple is for those that want to change. I mean, th this is a common link. Um, in fact, if you go through the, the Gospels, and, and, and not just the Gospels, you look throughout history, one of the common factors in people who, um, who come to Jesus, come to him and, and, and kind of lay their lives to him, um, they're, gen they're, they're, they're people who are broken, they know they're broken. Um, they're people who know they live under condemnation and shame. They're people who know that they have, um, have been disconnected and disjointed and uh, far from God. And they know that it's bad for them and they know that it's somehow got them, it's got them sideways in life. Um, and that people who come to Jesus also are those who feel a deep, need for change in their lives, who know that something's, maybe something's just not right about me. Something needs to change. I know I felt that way um, uh, in a pretty weighty way. And so it's no wonder that one of the main themes here is that the centrality of repentance is key to becoming a disciple of Jesus and that it is made possible to repent in the gospel. He tells the Pharisees at the front end of this, these stories, he says, repent um, in, in keeping fruitfulness, the kind of repentance that produces fruitfulness. You may repent with your lips, but your life doesn't show that it actually took. Um, and so what he says to them on one hand is just true, but it's also 
condemning in that they were very much, like many people, in no position to repent very well. But it's what he then goes on to say. He says, he says my baptism is anticipating repentance and forgiveness. His baptism will bring the spirit and fire. Now, what that means is that Jesus not only is going to be one who calls for repentance, he's going to bring teeth to the party to allow repentance to actually take place. And the teeth is the Holy Spirit and the fire the Holy Spirit brings to repentance. That it actually can be done in a way that was not able to be done prior. Remember, becoming Jesus' disciples for those who want to change or be changed, feel like they've been living under that cloud of darkness we see near the end of our text today. And living in the light. Man, nothing better than living in the light. Nothing more... Um, shame-inducing and difficult. Even difficult. It's, it's a management nightmare to live in the dark. Um, who don't want to live in the dark, Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit would give this repentance, the teeth it need, energizing its effectiveness for me to experience real change. The gospel places true change. The kind of change that most people are after. I mean, most people make resolutions because they want to change. Now, change is built within the coding of the human heart. And, and the gospel says change is actually possible. Like lasting, deep, affecting change is possible. And Jesus becomes the sender of spirit-empowered repentance and change. God has entered our world and is communicating through his Son, who is endowed with the Holy Spirit of God. And with that, he is given the empowered authority. The Great Commission tells us that's the empowered authority to give the Holy Spirit to people as a part of his commission and as a part of our commission to preach or proclaim that the Holy Spirit is available for real change. And so as we tie this up, we really do see how he has laid a foundation to where not only does John start saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, but he ends and begins then his ministry and his calling of disciples with the same message, the foundation of becoming his disciple, believing you can repent, believing the kingdom of God is here and available and able to be lived under, and that in that he has come near in the king himself. And he can be known, and we can be known by him. This is the message of the gospel as he goes and calls disciples to himself.